Fantastic. A round of applause before I've had the chance to make a mess of the uh, proceedings. But thank you anyway. Thank you, Jose. Um, and thank you all for coming here this afternoon. I hope over the next hour or so, we'll be able to, through this excellent panel we have here, give you a better insight into not just the benefits and you know some of the potholes involved in engaging with a wider audience about your research, but also to uh, think about the wider benefits to you as individuals and your careers, uh, which I think all of you uh, whether or not you think uh, the rest of your career will be spent at LSE, it will no doubt be at the uh, forefront of your mind. What I'm going to do to begin with is just spend a couple of minutes offering a personal perspective. Then I'm going to introduce the, each of the panel and ask them to um, maybe say a few things about their own personal experience. And then I'm going to come to you and ask you to ask some questions uh, or offer some comments. So this will really be as good as you try and make it. And if when I come to ask you if you have any questions, you'll stare at me blankly. This could be <laughs> um, something where you want to uh, withdraw the applause that you gave right at the start. So um, as uh, Jose said, I'm the Policy and Communications Director at the Grantham Research Institute. It's uh, a new institute uh, established at LSE in November 2008 to provide an umbrella for its climate change work. And uh, the role I have is not really a traditional role that you find in universities. I spend all of my time not thinking about research or teaching, but really thinking about how we communicate outside of the academic realm. And we have at LSE, we're fortunate to have uh, some very important and um, very um, influential individuals when it comes to climate change policy in the UK and internationally. The Institute is chaired by Nicholas Stern, uh, who you might know used to work at the Treasury and was the author of a very influential Stern review of the economics of climate change. And in the current environment, we're all existing in here at universities, we ought to be thinking about our impact on the outside world beyond academia for two main reasons. One is that increasingly, as you all know, the public sector finance is under great pressure. That means two important consequences. The first is that when David Willits, who's the new minister responsible for universities, goes to argue his corner against other people around the cabinet table, he's going to have to argue why it's important to fund universities. Now, they are a good in themselves, but it will help his argument if he's able to say, here are examples of excellent research that goes on in universities that has demonstrable benefits beyond the university sector. So there's one reason for being uh, thinking about how you engage and what kind of an impact you can have outside the university sector. The second, of course, is that in this environment of constrained public uh, finances, uh, funding from outside is important. And uh, at the uh, Institute, we're funded through the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. It's a private foundation that uh, supports work in the environment. It, it's not public sector funding. We also have funding from a public source, the Economic and Social Research Council, and we also have funding from an, a reinsurance company called Munich Re. And those multiple funding uh, streams uh, not only increase our capacity, but give us uh, a different perspective on the 
sort of benefits of the work we can do and the directions in which we can pursue it. So I think everybody at the Institute and the Centre understand very well the benefits and we gain a lot out of the interaction as well as having more money in our pocket to spend on research. Um, so I'm not going to say too much more from my uh, uh, um, from this uh, position now. I'm going to turn it over to our panel who are really experts. Um, but as I said, I would encourage you to think about these issues and maybe if you have comments on the general uh, environment and even the reasons why we should be engaging outside academia, then please feel free to raise those in the second half. But let me introduce the panel now. On my far right, I have Sarah Mystery, uh, who has been Head of Research and Learning at the Big Lottery Fund since 2004. Prior to that, she worked as a manager and evaluator in the third sector and overseas. Uh, she did her Master's at the Centre for Civil Society at LSE. Uh, next to Sarah is Zach Cooper, who's an economist in LSE Health, who's interested in improving the way healthcare systems are structured. His current research looks at the impact of competition on hospital quality. Zach appears regularly in the popular press. Uh, he's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, the incredibly successful uh, blog based in the US, and appears frequently on radio and TV. He served as a speechwriter and policy advisor to several politicians, and his academic research has been presented at the Number 10 Strategy Unit, the Department of Health, the Cabinet Office, and the Treasury. On my left here, I have Sarabhajaya Kumar, who's held academic appointments at LSE, UCL, and the University of Oxford, where she is currently an Associate Fellow of the Institute of Science, Innovation, and Society. She advises several civil society organizations and is a, a non-executive director of a social enterprise and a governor of an inner city state school for girls. Sarah Bajaya is about to join LSE's Teaching and Learning Center, which you might know as the initials of TLC, which I had to check didn't mean tender loving care before I uh, arrived here today, uh, as the advisor for early career researchers. So most of you, I hope, will see a lot more of Sarah Bajaya uh, soon in her uh, new role. And um, lastly but not leastly on my far left is uh, my colleague Simon Dietz uh, who joined LSE in 2006 where he is now Deputy Director of the Grantham Research Institute and of the Centre for Climate Change Economics and Policy which is funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. He is also a lecturer in the Department of Geography and Environment. He previously worked at the UK Treasury as an economic advisor on the Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change, and he holds a degree in environmental science from the University of East Anglia, and uh, has master's and PhD degrees from LSE, where he, uh, specialising in environmental policy and economics. So, can you start by giving a round of applause to our uh, to our <laughs> panel so they don't feel left out? And as I said, I, I'm going to invite them each to spend about five minutes now just talking about their own personal experience. So can we start with Sarah? Sure. Can you hear me? Excellent. Um, I come at this as a, from a slightly different viewpoint from my colleagues in that I call myself a practitioner. I'm a commissioner of research and evaluation across a wide range of social policy areas. Uh, Big Lottery Fund, you may know, uh, is the largest funder of the third sector after government. We spend about £650 million a year across a very wide range 
of social policy areas, community projects, health, education, environment, and so on. And we conduct research and evaluation across all those areas. In addition, we have a research grants program which voluntary sector organisations can apply for uh, in collaboration with an academic partner. So that's rather a, a, a test of how useful research is. Um, and uh, I'd be happy to talk some more about that. From my viewpoint then as a practitioner, I wouldn't dream of getting any research going that was purely of academic interest. Of course, I understand the value of such knowledge and the benefit and cross-fertilization of building academic cumulative knowledge for helping the development and enriching of ideas. But I'm coming from a rather different stance on this. If research is to be useful rather than interesting, by which I mean leading to a change in policy or practice or the way people do things, it requires engagement with the world beyond academe. It may involve asking some rather fundamental questions about the purpose of your PhD. If you're filling a gap in knowledge, exploring hitherto uncharted territory, why? Does it matter? Who does it matter to? What will happen to your conclusions? Will anybody do anything differently as the result of your work? If you want to move out of the realm of the theoretical, knowledge for its own sake, then I think you need to get out there, engaging with others and considering how research can be turned via learning into action for change. And this will involve talking to people, whether in the design stage, the very earliest stage of formulating your topic, during the implementation stage as research subjects via case studies, interviews, etc., or at the end stage, the users of the research. The more those people feel involved, consulted with, listened to, the more they'll be interested in the outcome and in doing something with the results. Now, we all know there are many pressures on academics, PhD students like you, to make the most of your research and to make it relevant in a way uh, that um, pertains to the real world and you're even asked to predict the impact you will have and find a handy way of measuring it in advance. This is all quite difficult as we know but you won't have any impact outside academia unless you've engaged early on with the potential users of your research. I suggest this means you need to do it proactively and directly from the very earliest stages of the design stage put simplistically what, what need or gap will you address through your research, through the study itself and then in terms of communicating its results, helping others to interpret what it means for them and if you get a chance you're getting involved in what happens as a result and for me that's the real power of applied research. Of course some will worry about undermining independence by this engagement, producer capture, vested interests, or boosterist research, to coin a phrase much beloved by third sector researchers, to prove a point. These are all risks to bear in mind, but they don't obviate the need for reality checking, real lived experience, however messy, by people in the real world, and engaging with people beyond, if I may use the expression, the laboratory conditions of the university. Get out there, get your hands dirty, I say. 
from my experience, the, the best studies, and I've been involved in commissioning 70 or 80 of them over the last five or six years, which range from short scoping studies to really uh, intensive large pieces of evaluation across four countries. Um, the, the feature of the best study is that there is a real clarity of purpose there and interest in the research being conducted in the first place. There is engagement throughout the research period, which is fed and fostered by regular updates, interim findings, possibly renegotiation of the research as it goes along to adapt to changing external conditions. And then an end result, which fully and comprehensively addresses the question in a rigorous way, producing timely, relevant and practical results. Of course, there are all manner of things you can do to share the results in a way that responds to audience needs, and that's the critical thing, and that's what all your posters demonstrate to a greater or lesser extent. Are you doing a poster so you can set out what you want to say, or are you thinking about the onlooker, the reader, the audience, the potential user of the research? <coughs> Who's going to read your PhD thesis, apart from a small number of academics, and your mum, is the question. <laughs> Useful research considers the audience need in terms of content, format, level, medium of communication. And it may require some special and different skills from those of uh, a regular academic discipline. So my favorite examples to come <coughs> up from the Big Lottery Fund are those research studies that we've done which addressed a genuine need gap in knowledge and got people engaged in refining the topic and the approach that kept them engaged all through so that they were keen to get their hands on the results of the findings and had to be fended off from interfering indeed in some cases. And then that, where that research fed directly into a policy change or a planning process or something that happened directly as a result. And our very best research studies have had application transferability beyond the setting from which they first started. So perhaps they've offered a way of looking at a complex problem that is transferable to something else. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of a typology that was developed in a, piece, a small research study on risk and good grant making, minority interest, you might think. But that typology, a way of looking at the stakeholders of an organization, actually was a really transferable piece of work that we've used in a whole number of other contexts since. And uh, a very, some might say, turgid evaluation on uh, a program called Fair Share, which has now turned out to have great topical and political relevance as we think about ways to get money down to communities and really building uh, local neighborhood engagement in, in determining what happens within communities. So in conclusion, I think I'd say it's not a choice about whether to engage with the world outside. It's not a choice, it's a necessity. Excellent. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, Zach? Sure. Um, yeah, I think if my mom read my PhD, I'd be in luck. I'm going to go out on a limb <laughs> and say that she did not do the, the bulk of it. Also, I see the person in the, the very back row. That's, I was a student here, and whenever I came to a lecture, I'd sit in that seat just in case it, it all went pear-shaped. I could, I could escape without creating a scene. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're, we're going to watch. Um, I'm sort of the, the anti-academic. Um, I, I don't think I ever 
you know, especially if you talk to my friends, they, they wouldn't have thought that this was the, the route I, I would have gone down. Um, you know, I, I came to this via politics, um, so much faster paced, um, much, much different uh, group of people um, who are typically involved in it. But I, you know, I did my master's here, I adored it, um, hung on for a PhD, and, and the rest is, is history. But I, I think like a lot of the folks in the room, there was a lot that I really liked about academia. Um, you know, I, I found it interesting, I, I adored teaching. There was also a lot that I really didn't like. You know, I, I was, you know, I think sometimes feeling a bit myopic. Um, you know, the focus was publish or perish, you know, churn out articles, um, you know, and I had this sort of overarching worry that I, I'd turned 50 and I'd have this sort of massive body of research that was read by a tiny body of people um, that I, you know, I would have, you know, gotten, you know, quarterly journal of economics publications, but, you know, it would have been read by a, a bunch of economists. And I, I started thinking a little bit about what I liked most about academia, and, and far and away was teaching, um, you know, above and beyond. And, and I think what I tried to do is try to make the other things that I did more like teaching, um, view some of the engagement with the outside world as, as essentially an extension of education. You know, so in, in one form or another, educating ministers, you know, making sure the work had some relevance, um, some policy relevance. Um, educating the public through television. Um, you know, I sort of view that as, as, as at some level what it is, and, and then contributing, I think, more broadly through, through publishing. And I found it pretty rewarding personally. Um, you know, I, I genuinely enjoy it. You know, for me, it was a really nice balance to some of the, the really narrow focus of my research. You know, it was nice to be able to see after you know, spending months locked away with Stata. Any Stata people? <coughs> One state of you know, with your, your syntax, the, that eventually you had a, a couple hours of exposure, you know, and you got to, to get it out there. And you know, then it was something I enjoyed personally. You know, I, I liked, you know, I think contrary to most folks, I actually like journalists. Um, you know, I, I think they're fun. I think they're interesting. I think they're well read. Um, I, I enjoy talking to them. I, I like politicians, um, for the most part. Um, I, I think, <laughs> on the whole, they're a, a pretty good group of people. And. Uh, I mean, I guess talking a little bit about how you get into it. Um, you know, the first is obviously the topic. Um, you know, I, I like Kierkegaard as much as the next guy. Um, I, I suspect your policy impact, if you're looking at sort of 19th century French literature, is, is probably going to be relatively limited. Um, and, and I think, you know, to be serious for a second, it, it's the research question. You know, I, I remember sitting with, yeah, I remember a particular politician actually, and we were looking at the evidence going, there's no way we can use this. You know, we've got to make a decision Next month, you're telling me about what happened six years ago. Sure, we can cite it, and, and we'll cite this in a speech. What evidence do I need to make the decisions I'm going to make? And I think if you want your research to have that effect, that's something you've got to be thinking about before you start it. You know, what, what research questions are going to help the folks who are, are going to need to make that decision? Um, I, I think the second is, you know, sort of bursting the bubble that there are journalists out there hunting for our names. You know, they're, they're sort of the only thing that's keeping us from the media is this sort of journalist failing on Google. Journalists are lazy, they're like everyone else. They're not sort of scrolling through the, the annals of internal medicine looking for that one study that happens to relate to the story they've got to do tomorrow. Um, it's, it's relationship building just like anything else. Um, I'm a Lincoln fanatic and 
apparently he comes back from, from D.C. to Springfield after his first congressional election. Somebody said, you know, Abe, I want to become a politician. What do I do? They said, we've well, got to ask people to vote for you. Um, <laughs> it's not different in this. Um, get close to journalists. You know, you'll, you'll meet them, maybe some here, at different events, and just say, hey, I'm Zach, and, and here's what my research is about. Um, they might not call. They might. If a story comes up, email Warwick in the press office. You know, hey, I, my research is about protests in Thailand. Uh, just might be relevant to you this week. Um, and, and then I think the third, we were talking a little bit about some of the, the downsides of it. Um, one downside, <coughs> you, you'll be called a hack by other academics. You know, you're, you're selling out to the man. You're, you, you, sort of, you enjoy getting your, your face in the paper, some cockamamie, whatever. Um, for me, there's no alternative. I'm either going to be criticized or I'm going to be totally anonymous. And I'd rather just not listen to the folks who are going to say some funny things. Um, and people write mean things, um, really mean things at times. But genuinely, the, the only people who are usually embarrassed are, are you. I, I had one guy write a really nasty editorial, and uh, my mom read it, and she wrote, well, at least the picture was good. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and she hadn't read the article. I mean, she, I'm sitting here mortified. I didn't want to leave my apartment. And, and she's like, oh, nice picture. Um, it, it, so nobody else really cares as, as much as you do about some of the bigger errors. And so have fun with it. Um, don't be afraid to make mistakes, and go out there and ask people. Thank you, Zach. Excellent. Uh, Sarah Bajayan. Thank you. Um, I found this a very difficult question to answer, you know, how do you make your research relevant? Because, like Zach, I came really from um, working in the field, if you, if you like. I, I ran a voluntary organisation in the East End of London. Uh, I ran partnerships between the public and voluntary sector. And then my research question for my PhD came from the field. Um, so I was trying to understand and make sense of the world around me. and all my subsequent research questions have come out from either people saying, would you like to do a piece of work on this? And so it was a little bit difficult to answer the question because I, I have to try and say, think about how to not make it relevant. But um, what I wanted to share with you really was a piece of work that I did when I was at uh, the Centre of Civil Society in LSE and to talk really a little bit about the unintended consequences of, of that work. Um, I've had two very, very positive experiences of engaging with people outside. One was through the Joseph Rowntree Foundation and one is, was through the Big Lottery um, uh, Fund with, with Sarah. Um, but because Sarah's talked about the Big Lottery, I'm going to talk about the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. And we were approached by a very small voluntary organisation who wanted to look at the difference that they were making in, in, the, in London. Um, they had very little money and they'd been to several universities before they came to us and um, they had all turned them down because it was just a very small budget. But I was a PhD student, I was strapped for cash and uh, I said, look, you know, I need the money. But quite apart from that, I wanted to understand what did governance mean this was in 2001. It was a new concept, a new word. Um, I didn't understand it, so I wanted to go and research it. And also, it was based in London, so I wanted to see what was happening in, in my city. So we did a preliminary study and um, realised that actually we needed a lot more money. And so with the director of the voluntary organisation, I we both put in uh, a grant proposal. And so the first benefit that I had from this piece of work was it was my second time ever putting in a grant proposal. So there was my capacity was being built. You know, as a result of that, I went on to then be able to uh, be very successful in, in raising grants. 
Um, the second thing was that we had to engage with an advisory group who were mainly non-academic, well, they were all non-academics, uh, real people, normal people. Um, and it meant that we had to find ways of communicating properly, you know, in, in an accessible way. So then, you know, hopefully another skill was developed. Um, I then, because I drew a lot on the director of the project to uh, answer, address the question, I felt that it was only ethical and proper that we co-produce the work together. So we co-authored the report, which was, again, another skill to work with somebody who isn't an academic uh, to produce an academically rigorous, policy-relevant uh, report. We had um, a roundtable of senior civil servants and senior uh, civil society representatives and academics uh, to, as, as Sarah pointed out, to um, give our interim findings, uh, present our interim findings to. And um, that was very useful. And as a result of that, when we did our final report, which was launched at the Globe Theatre, we had great fun, you know, champagne. It was, it was terrific. It was, we had a good time. The Charity Commission were there who had been on this interim stakeholder group. And they announced that they were um, implementing our policy recommendation for light-touch governance for these organisations. So we had influenced um, policy. So I think you know, there are many reasons um, as to why one should engage with stakeholders outside <coughs> academia. Um, I can't think of any reasons not to, um, and for me there's never been a downside. Uh, the, the, the kind of positives have been that this tiny piece of research, uh, and as Sarah said, you know, often it's the small bits of research that make a, a really big impact. Um, it influenced the charity commission. It, I, I then became an advisor to the Home Office, so I got um, experience of, of being sort of on an advisory group of government. Influenced the London Funders Forum, which is um, a very influential group of funders in, in, in London, to kind of look at how they funded this uh, small sector of civil society. I was invited to Toronto, where I spoke to foundations and civil society organisations there, and there were some kind of policy impacts there. Um, and it, this was in 2002, but the, the, the benefits and the impacts and the engagement carries on. Um, I co-authored a definition with, with Jonathan Roberts, who's here, he's a PhD student here, um, for the uh, International Encyclopedia of Civil Society on organisational governance as a result of that work. Um, and uh, I currently teach at UCL, and one of my public policy MSc students uh, said to me about three weeks ago that she was very grateful that I did that piece of work because she's been able to negotiate <coughs> access to her case study organisations internationally, one in Ireland and one in South Africa, because they'd read that piece of work. Um, so, you know, it, there, there, there are lots of uh, positives. And I think the other thing is I've had great fun. I mean, I've you know, got into networks that I never thought I would get into. I have had invitations that I never thought I would have. Um, and, you know, I have learned and I hope that I have been able to kind of exchange the knowledge that, you know, I have produced um, or co-produced. So I, I'm a real enthusiast for uh, engaging outside academia and I think that there's nothing but kind of benefits really. So that's what I would say. And I would also say I don't think my mother's read the abstract of my PhD. She glazes <coughs> over sort of at line three. So <laughs> I'd like to meet a mum who has. <laughs> Thank you very much, Sarah Bajaya. Um, Simon. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Well, um, 
My father, who was a, a history professor, did read the abstracts of my PhD, but <laughs> didn't get any further, which I, I thought was really, frankly, quite insulting. <laughs> um, so I didn't prepare a presentation, and I'm actually glad that I didn't, because having listened to the other presentations, I think it would probably be to the benefit of the panel discussion as a whole if I offer a slightly subversive um, perspective. Um, there are, nevertheless, I'll, I'll, I'll probably come to the same conclusion at the end about the overall benefits of interacting with wider stakeholders, if you like. Um, there are probably two reasons why I might have been invited on, onto the panel. I don't know what they were, Liz, but let me make a guess. Um, the first one uh, is that when I finished my PhD, which I did here, I became one of the first ESRC uh, placement fellows. I was actually placed to do my postdoctoral fellowship at the Treasury and found my way onto a team doing a review on the economics of climate change. So I was actually transplanted uh, from here into um, the UK's Economics and Finance Ministry, where suddenly my research had to be relevant to policymakers. And ultimately, when the review was published, it also rose to, to public prominence. Um, one of the main things I did on the review was to try to put a, 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 a dollar or pound value on the cost of unabated climate change, which literally became front page news for a week or two. And subsequently, uh, I was involved in a, a series of reasonably high profile debates about whether the review was any good or not. So I've actually come back to academia since then. So in a way, I've, I've come the other way. I'm not talking to you as, as someone who has been doing pure scholarship and is, is make, has made a transition into the, the real world. I'm actually talking as someone who was in the real world for a bit and then came running back into academia. <laughs> um, secondly, another possible reason why I'm here is because as Deputy Director of the Grantham Institute, I, I manage large grants. And so I'm responsible on a week-to-week -week basis for managing the interface between large public and private sector funders and researchers of varying degrees of seniority from professors down to postdoctoral researchers and PhD students. So I experience on a weekly basis the challenges of particularly allowing uh, our young researchers freedom to develop their research and interact with stakeholders and so on, while reconciling that with the funders' interests on the other hand. Now, um, what all of that does is uh, suggest to me the following. Firstly, um, the part of my job that I enjoy the most is the pure academic bit, to be honest with you. Um, I came back into academia because I enjoyed doing the pure academic bit. I actually enjoyed the space to do that. Um, so, uh, partly the way I will, uh, I'm approaching this problem that we've been set as panellists today is to... to, to uh, make sure that you can keep doing that if that's what you enjoy. Um, uh, now, secondly, um, I also believe in the benefits of pure scholarship, pure academic scholarship. Um, uh, and that's not just because um, universities' sort of knowledge is, a, is a sort of in some sense uh, an intrinsic public good, um, but also because uh, relatively few of the inventions which have ever proven to be useful in the history of humanity have been stimulated by uh, directed uh, public funding uh, drawn up in a, or, or even private sector funding drawn up in some business or some ministry with an express purpose to achieve the aims set out at the beginning. 
just think about most of the inventions that have ever been made that have proved useful and ask how did they come about and was, were, were their end uses largely accidental. So I also think that, that pure scholarship has its benefits. The main point that I would like to make is that certainly in the social sciences in my experience, pure scholarship and good academic work uh, is usually made stronger at the outset by an interaction with stakeholders and the real world. Uh, and in the work I do, the reason for that is, is, is pretty simple. Um, the real world questions challenge established theories, usually. Usually it is very hard to make a, a standard theory in whatever discipline you work in uh, fit with real world problems. There are all sorts of messy complications. And therefore, in my experience, a lot of the best academic work is work which has been triggered by, the question has been initiated by uh, an interaction with the real world, a desire to answer some kind of problem which is of importance to public policy or, or business or uh, the third sector or whatever. And so for that reason alone, um, it is very important that as researchers to get out there at the beginning. And that this is also saying that, the, that some kind of linear model where you dream up your research idea, do it, and then sell it at the end is unlikely to be the most successful model of carrying out research. And what I would say to you is get involved in as many public discussions as you possibly can as PhD researchers and as young researchers as early as you can in the process. Uh, go to public lectures, uh, read the press, talk to journalists, uh, go to think tank events, and so on and so forth, and really start immersing yourselves in the discussions that people are actually, that the ultimate users of your research uh, are actually having. And if you do that, not only is your research likely to have a greater impact, but it is also likely to be intrinsically better academic research as a result. Excellent. Thank you, Simon. And, and thank you to all four of the panel here. I think um, what they've shown is that between them, they have a wide variety of both of experience and of viewpoints on this. Um, I think at this point, I, I'd like to just clarify, the, the overall message we're trying to send here is not that um, academic research is a bad thing, that you should ultimately just stop doing it. You've got the... <laughs> And that somehow there's this greater uh, uh, rewards out there from uh, from uh, aiming at research that has more of an applied um, a, a, an application to uh, a non-academic problem. The, the point is that I often feel talking to my colleagues is sometimes, particularly when you're a PhD student operating in an academic environment, is you sort of like aren't aware of how much interest there might be in your research outside and you actually would be very surprised, pleasantly surprised by the number of people who would be interested and it's perfectly possible to do research that's both academically respectable and has a relevance to uh, a wide group of people outside. So it's really recognising your options rather than closing them down and choosing one or the other that's important here. But you've now heard from the panel, so this is your first invitation to uh, put any burning questions you might have to them. And um, uh, no need to feel constrained. Um, I would ask you to make it relevant to the uh, overall theme of the discussion, but uh, feel free to ask any left field questions if you want. Are we going to send the microphones around or not, do you think? Yeah. Okay, we, we have some roving microphones, so when I... 
um, signal for you to ask a question. Can you wait for the microphone to arrive? Not least because this is going to be recorded and podcast, so that's also a reminder to um, ask questions that aren't uh, that you would be happy to have broadcast in that way. So, any questions then? Uh, down at the front here, please. No, no, no. With the, with the red. Okay, well, we'll go left first. Fine. Uh, we'll come back. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm the PhD careers advisor here, so in a sense, I'm part of the interface between the PhD students and the, and the outside world. Um, I'm curious about, and perhaps building on the last thing that you said, what key skills you as a panellist have found most effective in helping you present yourself as researchers, rather than just saying, how do I make my research relevant, but, but actually more transferable skills as researchers um, to, to make yourselves um, presentable to grant givers and to non-academic employers? Who wants to have the first bash at that? I mean, I guess quickly for me, it's doing good research. I mean, I know that there's just no shortcut to it. You know, the what gets noticed are things that are in high-impact journals, and so I think at some level there's no shortcut. You know, and, and I think also understanding that one of the dangers, I think, the more you venture into a slightly more public sphere, is the sort of gopher video game problem. You know, the sort of hitting the gopher who sticks his head up. You know that you expose yourself to it, and, and, and I think it raises the. Yeah, you're, I'm sure you guys have had that issue. It, you know, it raises the prospect of doing good work, yeah, and if you don't, that that sort of quickly gets sussed out. Sarah, notwithstanding that, I think there's an issue of being able to use a language that is comprehensible to the lay person. So that that is the skill of explaining simply, clearly, in non-academic jargon what it is your research is about. And I, that means you have to explain some quite difficult concepts, you have to explain methodology which is intricate, technical, boring to some people in a quick and clear way. And I think this is quite a hard skill and some academics <coughs> don't ever acquire it at all. So in some cases there's a case for a, um, a sort of translation discipline, shall we say, the, the notion of the research manager or the uh, the interpreter who can work alongside an academic or researcher to help with the conveying of messages in that simple language. But I, I don't think it's easy, but I think it's critical. I, I think I'd endorse it. I think communication here is something I have to say that having been in and out of the university sector, communication skills are not valued as highly in the academic sector as they should be. Because frankly, um, it doesn't matter how much of a genius you are, if you can't communicate to anybody, who cares? You know, nobody will ever find out. I practice regularly um, a little exercise on myself, which is an elevator pitch, and I imagine myself in a lift with somebody who potentially is going to be a benefactor for the rest of my life and basically will give me endless amounts of money to do what I want. And I practice in, you know, in 15 seconds explaining what I do and why they should fund it. And, and that's a very good discipline because, frankly, that's the kind of discipline you're going to need to explain to somebody you first meet in a pub, for instance, if they ask you. You don't want, you don't want you know, to time out after 15 seconds by starting to say, well, that's very complicated and, right, and you get through all that before you've even said. So um, where, wherever you are in life, and I've been in private public sector organizations, 
communicating effectively will always be to your benefit. And being able to communicate, as Sarah said, with a wide variety of audiences, and that doesn't mean just using simple language, but engaging your audience. Because simply boring people is not really to your advantage either. So learn to convey your enthusiasm as well and your, you know, the excitement you feel about your research. That's as valuable. I, I speak as having recruited people before and somebody who sounds bored by their own research isn't somebody I'd want to hire because I think, well, if you're going to be bored by your own research now, then how do I know you're going to be excited by coming to work for me? So, anyway, that's enough. Mayor, do you guys have I, any more I, I would um, uh, agree wholeheartedly with the, the idea that it's communication that's most important. I think if you were to try to correlate uh, academic rigour with persuasiveness in the public sphere, it would be positive but very weak. Um, there are lots of very persuasive people who actually don't have a lot of uh, substance underneath them. I politicians discovered this hundreds of years ago. But, um, <laughs> um, it, I, would be, I would be extremely surprised if any of you found yourselves discussing your research in, in a non-academic setting and found yourselves under pressure because of the minutiae of your methods and results. It won't be. It'll be about, some of, it'll be about understanding and communicating some of the fundamentals and, and arguing why your research is important. Uh, and so all of the questions are basically around communication. And I, I would agree with that, and I, I, I'm sure a number of you, if not all of you, are engaged in, in teaching, and, and Zach said one of the key interests for him, and, and equally for me, in academia has been teaching. So teaching is sort of very much, a, if you're an effective teacher, an effective um, a communicator. But I, the elevator pitch reminded me, I was on a plane last week, I was going to give um, a presentation at a social capital seminar in Spain, and uh, I was sitting next to a merchant banker who said, uh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to give a presentation on and he said, on what? And I, he said, look, I'm a merchant banker, I've got two minutes, on what? <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, okay, and uh, so, you know, it was a bit like your elevator pitch, really, but then he then proceeded to talk to me for about the rest of the journey, because <laughs> he got really interested in social capital. So um, it is, it, and I endorse what Sarah said as well, that social capital is one of those, and, you know, I, I saw some posters, there's some people working on it, it's one of those terms that uh, can be very sort of uh, difficult to, to explain um, uh, well. So, um, yeah. Very good, excellent. And there was a question here. Hi, my name is Elisabetta Marinelli and I'm a PhD student in the Geography Department. So, what you've been saying, uh, you've been mostly targeting the researcher, as if it was like our own responsibilities, which largely it is. But what I question is, like, to what extent the incentives are there for this to happen? Because whenever you talk to PhD students, uh, of my generation for sure, all of us want to be engaged, but then when it comes to applying to jobs, if we have to choose, what matters if we want to stay in academia is the publication record, and our days are only of 24 hours. So somehow, I don't know if like, academia recognizes institutionally that this is important as well. Anybody want to respond first to that? Zach? I agree, and I think it's unfortunate that it doesn't. I, it part, I think it's moving that way. Um, I think that's part of it. The, the flip side, though, is I think it's the question of how to be happy your, yourself with what you're doing, and I think that leads to better research. So for me, if 
you locked me in a room and kept me doing peer review articles for the rest of time, not only would I be unhappy, but the peer review work wouldn't be good. And I think what happens is you get the symbiotic relationship between the external work you do and your academic work. And I think they strengthen each other. You know, and so you end up getting a better focus, you know, as Simon was talking about, on what the research questions are. That leads to better scholarship. The better scholarship then leads to the, you know, and it's sort of this, this cycle. And I think if you figure out the balance for yourself, that'll make the best scholarship, which will then ultimately get the, the, the academic kudos. I'm going to give the flip side from speech writing. You know, I, I remember writing speeches in a motorcade in the back of a car. And then I came to academia where I had six months to write a paper. And arguably, the writing was about the same quality in each. And so I think the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And one of the things that getting yourself out of balance does is it just makes you write. Um, so I, I think that helps. I think engaging as well. It can take time, but it can also give you energy. Um, and it can also, um, you know, make your work more dynamic. So it's not, it's not sort of taking away as such from the publications. You're, you're obviously still going to do them, but uh, engagement in, in that way doesn't necessarily mean that you're taking away from your <coughs> writing. Earlier, we were saying, um, my, my, when I was doing my PhD, I went and gave a paper at a conference, um, and it was a practitioner conference. Um, and just because my supervisor said it was a good thing to do and off you go and go and do it. So I did and that was it. Uh, over lunch a funder came up to me and said you know we really like your work we'd like to fund you. I, I never knew funders did this and I don't think they do but I subsequently thought they did because you know, we'd like to fund your field work um, and it was the Joseph Rowntree Foundation and you know you need to put in a, a, a bid and, and so what, what happened was my PhD was still a robust academic piece of work but then I had a policy output for it and it just um, engaging in that was was very positive for me so I don't think it has to be a zero-sum game you know it's either that or that and also you'll be competing with people who do have publications so then if you have that added um, you know transferable skills to your your CV then if, if there's two of you and you've both fairly equal academically, then that might give you the edge. Thank you. I, I, I mean, I, I'd like to offer a perspective here that is often um, not welcome, welcomely heard in universities. It's the fact is, if you look at employment statistics, the majority of PhD students do not end up in a career in academia because, frankly, there are more of you than there are jobs around. And, and the difficulty you get whilst being a PhD student is you often only hear people who have made that career path and you often don't get to hear about the um, options and that's why careers services are so important to you and I promise you there are many benefits to a life outside of academia not least of which is salary usually uh, but there are in as many intellectual rewards I would say there's a tendency in academia to um, sometimes overplay the advantages um, of being in academia and underplay the advantage of being outside 
for me, uh, I always wanted the option of being able to choose. I didn't want to have to say I'm only going to be in academia or not. So you, you, throughout your life, you're going to have to manage your own career. And frankly, that means keeping all your options open as much as you can and being able to do what you want, not letting other people decide for you. I'll stop at that point with that. Anybody else uh, got any questions? Uh, we have a question here from the microphone. In that case, I'll <laughs> ask a question. Um, the first one is quite a practical question. What can you what can you tell us about kind of grant opportunities for young career researchers, early career researchers? And my second question is maybe a little bit more polemical. I think part of this whole um, drive towards making research relevant, measuring impact, uh, making the whole process of doing a PhD and re and producing research more efficient, is the fact that increasingly an ideal PhD student is somebody who starts out with a very specific, well-defined question and answers it with no detour, and in the end is a person who can dance on the head of a needle. So um, is, that, is that a good thing? And if it's not at universities that people will ask kind of big and rambling questions, where is it going to be? Simon, as the defender of the academic uh, <laughs> career? Okay, let me take the easy one first, uh, grant opportunities. Uh, I, I would say that uh, the, ma the majority of postdoctoral researchers at this institution will be funded by the main UK uh, grant-giving organisations, namely the Economic and Social Research Council, um, the Leverhulme uh, Foundation, um, perhaps the British Academy. Um, some of the particular, some of the departments and research centres will also have their own fellowships on offer, um, <coughs> uh, LSE fellowships which have teaching duties associated with them, um, or uh, research fellowships in, in some of the, in some cases in the research centres we have, for example, a number of them in Grantham. Um, in terms of the, the second question, um, well, I, I mean, I, I don't know what the question part of it was, whether it was a good thing that... Uh, this is the, the, the trend. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure it is a good thing. Um, I think that the, um, I think the overall objective of delivering research, which is for for the public good, is the right one. Um, but the 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 idea that this <coughs> could be brought about through the increasing measurement of impact uh, and. Uh, Increasingly, uh, <coughs> directive goals for research students at the outset of their research is possibly not the, the, the right means to that end. Uh, nevertheless, it is the world in which we now exist, <coughs> and consequently, I mean, there's, there's no getting around that. But as a as a as a centre director, I think one of the things which is which we have as as our um, core duty is to um, provide uh, a conducive environment for young researchers, so to protect them where necessary from the, 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 the less desirable aspects of, of uh, interaction with the wider world, but also to not to protect them where there are good things to get out of it. So it, it, it's, it's much a question for the, the institution that you're working in as it is for you yourself. Anybody else have any comments on that? I, I think I, it's, it is inevitable. We are in this world of impact measurement, and I don't think it's going to go away. 
um, the research excellence framework is going to be very much part of, of that. So that is the context we're operating in, um, is what I would say. Um, and I, 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 although I haven't appeared so, I do believe in scholarship for scholarship's sake. I do think it is important that we have you know, medieval historians looking at, you know, 8th century, whatever. But, um, you know, uh, that's, that's all I can say really to that. <laughs> I got asked this question uh, <coughs> to write about this topic on a blog for New Scientist magazine last week. And I, I offered, uh, said there were two choices. You either try and buck the trend, as Simon says, the writing's on the wall, and you either just decide you don't want to engage and see how well you do with that, or one other way is to decide how best you think your, the value of your work should be judged. And this is, to me, the, where the academic world should be going, is, is rather than letting other people decide how to judge the value of the work, is to get involved in evaluating research. Because I have to say that I don't find it convincing, and I don't think anybody else will find it convincing, for you to say, well, you can't measure the worth of my work, it's you know, immeasurable. Well, that, or, or it's not worth anything is, <laughs> is the other alternative. So I, I would say, think long and hard about how you demonstrate the value of your work, because you're probably in a good position, and if you aren't being guided by the impact you're having, then I, I'm not quite sure why you're doing it in the first place. Anyway, we've got a question here. Um, I actually come from a publisher. I'm commissioning editor for Sage um, Research Methods. And I've been to a couple of these conferences recently with academics, actually, talking about the same issue of impact. And I wonder whether we're kind of overplaying this idea of you know, academic research not for the public good, research with policy implications for the public good. I think one of the things academics are worried about is the fact that um, social science research is, also, is often trying to find out the complexities around issues. Policymakers perhaps want a one-page summary. Certainly MPs I've heard speaking at these conferences are saying we want a one-page summary with things that we can act upon. All social science research doesn't aim to give that kind of three-point summary. This is what you can do with, with policy. So, I mean, maybe that's one of the complexities and how do you think people can work with that without saying I'm not doing research for the public good, but how, how do you work with that tension? Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, but uh, uh, I think it demonstrates again that often research will have a variety of audiences and for it to be of use, there needs to be some adaptation of it for the different audiences, which isn't to say you undermine the rigour of the research, you do a very full research study, but then you need to think about the different products, one might say, arising from it. And there's no getting away from the fact that if you want to influence policy, you, a page of bullet points is the most you'll get. In fact, I have heard policymakers say, give me a number and give me a story. That's what they want, a number and a story. And a story meaning a human story, personalized, the case, the individual. Um, and these, the, you, you have to accept the different needs of the different audiences and adapt, cut your cloth accordingly, I would say. You may then run up against, you know, your concerns about the gorgeous detail of your research and the intricacies, the complexity, the nuance on the one hand this, on the other hand that. But, um, and you may feel this is selling your soul a little too far. But I think 
I think if you are to, to work with those different audiences and to get your research out there, you have to look at it from the viewpoint of the, of the audience, yes. Yes? I don't think it's a dichotomy. I think it's a duality. You know, it's just, as, as Sarah said, just underlining what Sarah says, that you're, you're, it's horses for courses and it's producing different things for different audiences. It doesn't mean, therefore, that you are not robust in your academic piece. Um, and that, I mean, that said, it's not easy. Um, and so, you know, organisations like Big Lottery, like Joseph Franchi, who I've, you know, worked <coughs> with, they're very good, actually, at helping uh, academics like myself who say, well, I, I'm not quite sure how to do this full page or full, full bullets or, you know, because I've written 60,000 words on this. And they're, they're very good at ha having people work with you to help you. And then that then builds your capacity to be able to do it next time. So I think to think of it as a dichotomy is not... No, I'm not saying you are. I, I think, we, you know, there is that um, discussion at the moment. It's, it's not helpful. And look, there's going to be research that's, you know, you get a grant to evaluate a government program that's not peer-reviewed work. I mean, it's just, it's a different beast, and you're going to have that. The, the flip side is, I, I think it's a good exercise for the academic work. I mean, it's getting back to that sort of dichotomy. If you can't draw four bullet points about work that you've spent a year on doing it, you know, you shouldn't be doing the work in the first place. It just, you know, I think bad scholarship before just got under the radar, um, and it just makes people lean forward and think a little harder. Okay, um, we have run out of time, so I'm going to allow one more question uh, right at the back. Hi, um, is this on? <laughs> yeah. um, my name is Nabil, I'm doing my PhD in the Department of Sociology, and um, just along the same kind of discussion, I kind of struggle with, I come from a policy background, and I'm kind of going the opposite way. And um, I think there's a bit of a risk to maybe think about the impact too much um, and have your research maybe be overly practical. And how do you, like, what are some suggestions that you have to kind of avoid something like that? I don't know if I'm being clear or not. Do you want to uh, offer a perspective? Well, I, I, I suppose I could start. I mean, so you and I had similar trajectories, I guess, in the sense right. that we did policy and then we, we um, moved into academia or, or back into academia. Um, I think that the strategy that we adopt uh, um, in the Grantham Institute and the strategy that I adopt personally is basically the horses for courses approach in the sense that one of the reasons uh, for proper academic research is to take the time to examine an issue carefully. Um, and that, you know, a part of your, your working life has to be carved out in order to do that, to write the more academic papers. Uh, but a, another part of your academic life can be set aside for doing um, the more uh, stakeholder-centric uh, pieces and of course there's read across between the two but there's no point trying to pass off the single output as being useful for all uh, for, for both of those those audiences because it, chances are it won't be so that, that's how that's how I and I think we as an institute cope with that uh, that challenge 
And I suppose the other thing to say that's slightly linked is you need to stand up for your research when you see it being misused. I think that we see quite a lot, quite a lot of obvious people generalising from the, the single case. In other words, using something to make a wider, bigger, broader argument when it really doesn't transfer across. Um, and I think you need to find assertive and clear ways of saying that shouldn't be done where, where you can. You know, we, in our cynical moments of my work, we refer to policy-based evidence making. That is, you decide what your policy is, then you go out looking for the evidence to uh, support the argument you've decided you have. And this is a risky business, so I think there's something about researchers, academics, standing up for the rigour and for potential uses of their work. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Um, I'm going to, I mean, we've got a bit more time after this when I think most of the panel members will be available to uh, maybe answer questions. Some of, some of them have to leave. But um, maybe the, I think the main message that has come across today is that there are lots and lots of reasons why you would want to engage with people outside of academia to discuss with them at all stages of your research what you're doing and that's a two-way conversation they can give you some good ideas without dictating what you're going to do you can plant the seeds of you know new ideas in their heads there are a lot of benefits there are some downsides and some risks associated but there are with almost anything in life that's worth doing but really you're at a very early stages in your career and this is all about your options and recognizing you know the benefits that you have by recognizing those options and exploiting them in the way that you want and that's really you, you are the best placed people to do that you know nobody else is going to come along and pluck you up and guide you down the right path this is really all in your hands so it's up to you to really uh, get to grips and decide what's best for you and uh, and all power to your elbow so uh, please um, a round of applause at the end again for the panel and for yourselves <laughs>